Once a pastor was officiating a funeral for a man named Clarence. He comforted his congregation with beautiful descriptions of the resurrection. Quoting from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he painted a thrilling picture of the trumpet sounding of corpses all around the world rising triumphantly from the dead, clothed in the glory of God. You could almost hear the voice of the archangel. Toward the end of the service, the pastor moved from the pulpit down to the few pews that occupied the family. He wanted to bring them some specific comfort. He quoted for them, Jesus, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He reassured the grieving family, Clarence has now entered his heavenly mansion. But then for the next 20 minutes or so, the pastor actually preached to the open casket. He spoke to the corpse. In fact, he addressed him so boldly that at times when he paused, the congregation halfway expected old Clarence to answer. He began, Clarence, there were a lot of things that we should have said to you, but you got away from us too fast. He told story after story of wonderful acts of kindness that Clarence had performed. At last, the pastor, he, he reached a crescendo. He shouted toward the deceased, That's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, there's only one thing to say. Good night. Good night, Clarence. And the pastor reached up and he grabbed the lid of the coffin and he slammed it down. Good night, Clarence. Boom. <laughs> Needless to say, the congregation was in a state of shock. That's when ever so slowly, the pastor raised his bowed head, revealing this big grin on his face. And then he said, good night, Clarence, because we know that the Lord is going to give you a good morning. That's when the choir jumped in, and everyone started singing, on that great morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. No one could sit still or remain silent any longer. Everybody jumped up from their seat and started dancing in the aisles and hugging each other. The joy of the Lord had filled the house. Hey, with nothing but the promise of the resurrection, this pastor had turned a funeral into a party. Even in the shadow of death, a Christian can laugh and sing and dance. And this is where we're at, at this point in the book of 1 Thessalonians. For over the last half of chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5, Paul has assured us of the hope we have in Jesus. For our spirit, there is hope. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For our body, there's hope. For when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive will be snatched away. We'll all live forever with Jesus. Hey, this should give us all reason to laugh and to sing and to dance. Paul is certainly excited. In fact, he has much, much more to say. But you see, Paul had a practical problem. Recall by the end of chapter 3, Paul had been wrapping up his thoughts. That's why in chapter 4 he begins... Finally then, brethren. But what happened to Paul uh, is an issue for most pastors. He got ready to conclude his message and he caught a second wind. He just wanted to keep going. 
the hope of the rapture and the coming of the day of the Lord stirred him up. He ended up elaborating for another chapter and a half. Now here's what I think. At this point in his writing, Paul looked at the space that was left on his scroll and he realized that he was running out of room to write. You see, an ancient scroll was a limited canvas. Paul is nearing the end, but he's not finished yet. You remember years earlier when Paul first visited Thessalonica and planted this church. He had to leave them abruptly. Some thugs ran him out of town. His ministry was interrupted in midstream. And it had left a few holes in the theology of the church in Thessalonica. That's why he's actually written these letters. But now he's running into the same problem. Before he was run out of town. Now he's running out of room. And he still has more to say. So, from this point forward, Paul compresses his thoughts. He squeezes some big ideas into a few words. You could say Paul vacuum packs these verses. Verse 16, notice, is just two words. Verse 17 is three. Verse 20 is just four. Here's some freeze-dried doctrine. Some wisdom, concentrate. I've titled today's message, Vacuum-Packed Theology. To conserve space, Paul condenses some deep truths into a series of pithy statements. We begin this morning in verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And every pastor who reads those words shouts, Amen! Preach it, Paul! Hallelujah! First notice, Paul urges. This isn't a casual suggestion that he hopes they'll mull over and act on later. It's more urgent. Therefore, he urges. It is urgent that all churches recognize its pastors and its leaders. Did you know the dropout rate for pastors is astronomical? This breaks your heart. Focus on the family reports that of all men who enter the ministry, only one out of 20 remains a pastor until retirement age. The stresses on a pastor and his family are enormous. As if life in the fishbowl isn't pressure enough, a pastor's world is full of natural predators. He wears a target on his back. And here's where some recognition and some appreciation goes a long way. Hey, I know this firsthand. Whenever I receive a letter from one of you thanking me for being of some help, you know what I do? I keep it. I got a drawer where I put all of those letters. And on certain days, I pull them back out and I read them over and over. Trust me, a good thank you has the power to keep a pastor going for another couple of months. It refuels his tank. This is why Paul urges the church to show their pastor a little love. Again, I I like Paul's wording. He doesn't suggest, but neither does he command. I mean, if you have to order someone to be appreciative, if it's not heartfelt, if it's coerced or conjured up, it defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Once there was a church that was hosting an event to show their pastor and his wife their appreciation. They sent him a reminder a few days in advance. Dear Pastor Ron, 
Please remember, next week is our pastor appreciation dinner. Tell your wife we have her down for a meat, a dessert, a gallon of tea, and a bag of rolls. Obviously, when you have an appreciation dinner without showing any real appreciation, you miss the point, haven't you? This is why Paul doesn't suggest, nor does he command, rather he urges the Thessalonians to recognize their leaders. And notice how Paul identifies a pastor who deserves such appreciation. We're told he labors among you, and he watches over you, and he admonishes you. First of all, he labors among you. He works hard, and he sets an example. Despite popular opinion, a pastor doesn't just work a few hours on Sunday. Mythbusters followed me around a couple of weeks ago and proved that notion false. Hey, here's my work week. Right out of the gate, I got two Bible studies to prepare and teach every week. More if there's a funeral or if there's a wedding or if I teach elsewhere. Then I talk to church members about their problems throughout the week, and I answer questions, and I manage a staff, and I make hospital visits, and I oversee the church finances, and I monitor the worship ministry, and I make big decisions regarding our school, and I report to the elders, and I mentor other pastors and help them in their churches, and I write books, and I plan events, and I reach out to non-Christians, and I keep up the facilities, and I manage the staff. Did I say I manage the staff? Well, speaking of our staff, we've got a a staff that works hard too. Here's the job descriptions around here. Pastor, leaps tall buildings in a single bound. More powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet, walks on water, hotline to God. Assistant pastor, able to leap short buildings in a single bound. As powerful as a switch engine, just as fast as a speeding bullet, walks on water if the sea is calm, talks with God when the pastor's asleep. Worship leader, leaps short buildings with a running start, almost as powerful as a switch engine, faster than a speeding BB, walks on water if he knows where the stumps are, and is occasionally addressed by God. Youth pastor, runs into small buildings, rides the pink pig, Not as fast as a squirt gun. Knows how to use the water fountain and mumbles to himself. Church secretary, and we've had a good one. Lifts the building to walk under it. Kicks locomotives off the track. Catches speeding bullets in her teeth. Freezes water with a single glance. And when God speaks, she says, may I ask who's calling? I hope you appreciate all the folks who labor among you. But a good pastor also watches over you. He isn't just working beside you, but he also watches over you. And this is vital. You don't want a pastor who only sees things from your point of view. You need a pastor who steps back from the day to day and keeps a sharp eye on the big picture. You see, a pastor's job is to set the overall direction and vision of the ministry. He's an overseer. He watches over the church. And then third, he admonishes. It means to caution or reproof gently. A pastor has the authority and responsibility to speak God's word with love. Commentator Leon Morris, he writes of this word admonish. He says, its tone is brotherly, but B 
big brotherly. That's the pastor's role. He's a big brother. I'm nobody's Lord, trust me. I'm nobody's father. You only have one Lord. His name is Jesus. You only have one God or one father, and that's God. A pastor's just a big brother. My job is to keep you out of trouble and teach you the ropes. Just be a big brother. And again, when we find church leaders who labor and oversee and admonish, how should we treat them? Paul tells us we should esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. Don't just pass on sappy platitudes you'd find on the back of a Hallmark card. No, recognize and appreciate their work. Isn't that what you like, for someone to appreciate your work? Everybody likes to be appreciated for what they do and contribute. In many ways, the health of a church is dependent on the strength of its leaders, and we are certainly stronger when we are assured of your support. Well, if you really want to express your gratitude towards your pastor, then take heed to Paul's next words, verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Hey, here's a great way to bless your pastor. Drop your pettiness and just get along with each other. That'll do the trick. I mean, nothing encourages a pastor more than when the people of the church love and serve each other. Nothing breaks his heart quicker than bickering among believers. You know, a pastor's job is never more tiresome than when he feels he has to do for the church what the people should be doing among themselves. But when the people build bridges among each other and take the initiative to greet and serve and reach out and care, oh, this is a pastor's greatest reward. Well, verses 12 through 13 tell us to appreciate those who are in authority over us. Well, verse 14 encourages us to deal with those who are out of order among us. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Now the word unruly, it means insubordinate. It was used of a soldier who refused to keep in step. He marches off beat. He refuses to observe rank. Imagine a military parade, 400 troops marching in sync, but there's one soldier out of step. You don't see the 400 men in unison, do you? You only see that one unruly soldier. Why, do, why is it that there's always somebody who insists on marching to his own drumbeat? Why is that? You know, some people refuse to get in step because they see something amiss. Hey, if your beef is legitimate, then address it appropriately. If you can't address it, find a new church. But there are other people who attend, who if they attended the church of Jerusalem, and if Peter was their pastor, they'd still found fault. It's the pride in their heart that keeps their feet out of step. They refuse to submit to even God-ordained authority. This is why Paul encourages us all to warn those who are unruly. This means that if you run across an unruly person, and he or she wants to bend your ear, hey, let me tell you about what that mean old Pastor James said to me. If somebody comes up to you like that, don't listen to them. You tell them that if they have a problem, they should go to Pastor James. And if they can't work it out with him, they can go to Pastor Sandy or to one of the elders. But you're not going to sit there and listen to their complaint. When you lend a sympathetic ear to an unruly person, you only substantiate their gripes. It's like pouring gasoline on a brush fire. 
and you're the one who's most likely to get burned. See, one of the keys to being an effective church is learning how to interact with all people. Not just cooperative, easygoing folks, but difficult people as well. You know, most organizations, they eliminate difficult people. They call out the problem people, but not the church. We're mandated by God to include everybody that Jesus saves. The unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, even have a place among us. And yet difficult folks should be handled properly. He says, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. You know, the Greek word translated faint-hearted, it means small-souled. Here is a shy, timid person. He's fearful. She lives within self-imposed boundaries. Last week I spoke to one of the five ladies who shared their testimony at the Christmas tree this weekend. She was telling me what a stretching experience this had been for her. That she had never shared her testimony in public before. I, I like the way she phrased it. She told me, God has been asking me to take a big girl pill. I like that. And you know, I comforted her. Not by commiserating. No, I told her she could do it. I gave her a cup of water to wash down that big girl pill that God was making her swallow. And this is the comfort we need. Encouraging, challenging kinds of comfort. Hey, God wants small-souled people to become big-hearted people. But you don't grow a big heart by treating a person like a big baby. A difficult person doesn't need pity or pampering. We need to uphold the weak. We need to uphold the weak. The idea there is that we need to teach them to stand on their own two feet. Hold them up so they can learn to stand. Imagine a physical therapist working with an athlete recovering from an injury. At first, the painful therapy, it looks like torture. You're pushing the limits in that weakened area. But what are you doing? You're really rebuilding muscle and flexibility and strength. You're doing it for their good. And this is how you mentor a troubled person. You uphold the weak. Notice to the words, be patient with all. These are the three keys to working with difficult people. Patience, patience, and more patience. We, you know, we just need to show each other the same patience Jesus has showed us, don't we? Healing takes time. People take time. Discipleship takes time. Some things can't be rushed, and our spiritual maturity is one of them. You know, the old King James translates this term faint-hearted as feeble-minded. That's a better description of me, feeble-minded. I'm a slow learner. Sometimes it takes me hearing a truth not once or twice, but multiple times before it clicks. Again, that's why I need patience, and that's why I need to show patience. And then verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Did you know our world is all about swapping evil for evil? Hit me and then I'll hit someone else. It's just a ricochet effect. Tit for tat, all around the world, evil flows. This is what makes the world go round. Evil is a chain reaction. That is until somebody smacks a Christian. 
For we have been called to be God's shock absorbers. Oh, we react. We fight back. But we take the animosity and the angst out of circulation. And we exchange it with love. We put love back into the world. In this way, we're changing the world one interaction at a time. Well, this is how you deal with difficult folk. You warn grumblers. You challenge the small-souled. You help the injured recover and get back on their feet. You give everybody enough time to grow. And when somebody pushes back with evil, you counter it with good. Now, Paul is going to go on to teach us how to maintain a healthy relationship with God. But I want you to understand this. Before he talks about joy and prayer and praise and all this spiritual stuff, just remember he talked about relationships first. He talked about love in practical ways. He talked about dealing with difficult people. Before Paul fine-tunes us spiritually, he expects us to be right relationally. Understand this. You see, I know folks with zero tolerance for difficult people. Oh, but they pretend to be right with God. In fact, they're mean to their wife. They neglect their children. Yet they walk around with this pomp of self-righteousness. Oh, they're tight with God. Don't be fooled by the knucklehead who claims to love God but hates the people in his life, who can't get along with the people in his life. There's something wrong there. He obviously doesn't know what real spirituality is about. The true measure of our Christianity is how we get along with people, particularly difficult people. Well, actually, compared to problem people, our relationship with God is a breeze. He talks about it beginning in verse 16. Paul tells us how to interact with God. He begins with two words, rejoice always. Hey, when you live in fellowship with God, there's always a reason to rejoice. Even in life's darkest moments, even in the most painful situations, if God is a part of your life's equation, there will always be a reason to take joy. Happiness is based on circumstances, but joy comes from God. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Hey, God can bring uninhibited joy even in difficult times. I think of Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail. They had been arrested unfairly. They had been beaten with rods. Their bodies were stretched out in the stocks. Hungry rats were nibbling at their toes. And yet Paul and Silas found at midnight, they were found at midnight singing and praising God. Even in their worst pain, they were filled with joy. You know, throughout the Bible, wine, the fruit of the vine, is a symbol of joy. And it's no accident. You don't get the sweet wine until you first crush the grapes. Sometimes our deepest joys are found in our heaviest trials. I love God's promise in Hebrews 13 verse 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. That means God is always with us. Thus, we can rejoice always. American playwright Eugene O'Neill, he wrote a play entitled Lazarus Laughed. It was about Lazarus' life after Jesus had raised him from the dead. And there's a scene in the play, a scene from Bethany. A dinner where Lazarus and his friends and Jesus, they all attend. And everyone has noticed that Lazarus is a changed man. 
There's a look in his eye. There's this faraway gaze. You, you look on his face. There's no more worry. There's no more fear. After dinner, Lazarus, he kneels before Jesus and kisses his feet. And as Jesus walks away, Lazarus starts to laugh softly. It's as if the two men, they're privy to an inside joke. O'Neill, he puts the following words into the mouth of one of his characters. He says, such a laugh I never heard. It made my ears drunk. It was like wine. Though I was half dead with fright, I found myself laughing too. Hey, in light of the resurrection and the soon return of Jesus, no matter how down we get, we're going to go up. There's always a reason for us to rejoice. Rejoice always. And then Paul commands, pray without ceasing. In other words, maintain an open-ended conversation with God. Pray and never say amen. Now there is such a thing as closet prayer where we shut out all distractions and focus in on communication with God alone. But we can't live our lives in a closet. That's why Paul here is commanding not closet prayer, but constant prayer. For all throughout the day, under the surface of our lives, we need to be carrying on an uninterrupted dialogue with God. You know, it's interesting the implications of this verse. We're told, pray without ceasing. But God would never command us to do anything we can't do. This helps us narrow down what constitutes real prayer. Prayer must be more than words. I can't verbalize without ceasing or I wouldn't eat or sleep. Prayer must be more than posture. I can't close my eyes and raise my hands behind the wheel of a car. Yet that's a good place to pray. Prayer must be more than a place. I can't be at church 24-7. Thus, real prayer is an unbroken stream of thought between us and God all throughout the day. What a beautiful picture of prayer. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And then in verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice Paul doesn't say, for everything give thanks. That would be difficult, if not impossible. I mean, how could I give thanks for the death of a child, or for a house fire, or for a serious accident? Maybe years down the road and after deep reflection, I might be able to salvage a good from such devastating circumstances. But that's not the point here. Notice Paul doesn't say, for everything give thanks. He knows the impossibility of that. He just says, in everything give thanks. You see, even in the wake of a terrible loss, even with questions swirling in my head, I can still hold on to what I know. I can still thank God that He loves me that I'm forgiven, that I'm His child, that I have a home in heaven, that my blessings in Christ can't be stolen, that the Holy Spirit ministers to me inexplicable joy. I can be thankful in everything. I can even be thankful that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And understand, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For the Christian, every day is thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting, the word gratitude is a derivative of the word grace. Our response to God's amazing grace is gratitude. 
not for everything, but in everything, let's give thanks. And then verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Now, as Paul said earlier, we shouldn't get caught off guard. Jesus is coming back soon. That's why we need to work while it's still day. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. With Him, nothing is impossible. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God shook the Roman Empire. In a few short years, He humbled Rome. Pagan Rome gave way to Christianity. And the church had nothing going for it except the power of the Holy Spirit. In reality, this is still the only advantage a church possesses. We also have this power, the power of the Spirit. But here's the problem. We can sin against the Holy Spirit and we can shoot ourselves in the foot. There are ways that we can hinder the Holy Spirit and limit His work. The greatest inhibitor is a lack of faith. Understand how Christian ministry operates. We don't provide the spark that changes a life. The power isn't ours. Never was, never will be. It's God's effort from start to finish. But what we do is to provide an environment conducive for the Spirit to move. That's our job. You see, revival is like a fire. You don't create your own fire. No, you provide a spark and a source of oxygen and some combustible material. And then that joins together and produces a fire. We don't produce the fire, but we can fan the flame or... We can douse it with our unbelief. You see, Paul is saying, don't do anything to snuff out the fire that the Spirit starts, the work the Holy Spirit wants to do. Don't you do anything to counter it or interfere with it or hinder it. He even goes further in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Wow, prophecy. This is when God speaks to us through the spontaneous words of another believer. It's a personal message from God conveyed through a third party. You know, your friend makes a statement, and you know it's from God. Instantly, you know it. It might sting. It might heal. But you realize this is a thus saith the Lord moment. Prophecy is an exciting form of communication. God is calling you out. That's prophecy. But you see, prophecy is also a risky form of communication. Just down the road from Thessalonica in the city of Corinth, the believers there were going nuts. They were abusing and misusing this and other spiritual gifts. They were posing their own notions as the will of God. They'd gone overboard. You see, the Corinthians were the Pentecostals, the church where anything goes. It was a confusing environment. Whereas the Thessalonians were the Baptists, They took the opposite approach. Just say no to prophecy. But the problem was that both groups were wrong. There was a balance needed. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You need to be open on one hand, but on guard on the other hand. Add verse 21 to verse 20, and Paul adds what's lacking. He says, do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Don't discourage legitimate spiritual gifts. God still dials us up through prophecy. He uses human mouthpieces, but along with humans come errors, don't they? This is why we need to be open but not gullible. Just because someone adds the prefix, thus saith the Lord, to their opinion, doesn't make it from God. 
You need to check it out with Scripture. You need to check it out with the church. You need to see if it's compatible to the nature of Jesus. If so, take it as God's Word. If not, well, it might have been last night's pizza. And then Paul adds, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. You know, some evils are easily identified. There's a skull and crossbones on the label. Danger, evil. Other evils come incognito. Overtime with a woman at work. Or an association with an unsavory friend. Some evils even dress up and come to church. We need to abstain from all manner of evil, the blatant and the bashful forms of evil. Paul closes his letter with a benediction. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I find this interesting. Some scriptures divide human personality into four parts. In Mark 12, verse 30, we're told, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There we are, we're four parts. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Other passages, such as Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 7, divide the nature of man into two parts. There's the inner man and the outer man. There's the body and the spirit. Here, Paul sees us as threefold. Spirit, soul, and body. Here's Paul's point. However you carve me up, I want every part of me to belong to Jesus. I want to be sanctified completely. I want to be God's, not just part and parcel, but completely. I want God to have my entire life. I want to be preserved and ready for His return. Don't you want the same? What a thought here that one day we'll stand before Jesus and be declared blameless. That's amazing. Me, blameless? Oh boy. Notice Paul doesn't ask to be preserved sinless. He knows that's an impossibility in this life. He'll slip up and sin. But he can be blameless. He is counting on the blood of Jesus to continually cleanse him and to constantly cover him and to blot out any guilt or any shame or any blame. Paul is intending to one day stand before Jesus and be declared blameless. And so am I. I love verse 24. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Isn't that great? Hear about the guy who walked into this fancy restaurant and wasn't wearing a necktie. So the maitre d' refused to seat him. The man was livid. He stomped out to his car. He grabbed the jumper cables out of the car, dangled them around his neck, walked back into the restaurant, and then shouted at the maitre d'. Hey, is this good enough for you? The maitre d' looked at him and said, Yeah, but you better not start anything. <laughs> Understand... What God starts in you, He intends to finish. He's faithful to sanctify us and make us His own. He's faithful to keep us blameless, to preserve us blameless at the coming of Christ. When will we learn that God's forgiveness knows no bounds?
Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Oh, here's a way to bless and thank your pastor for what he does. Pray for him. This pastor needs your prayers. Then he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, now if you're a big, beefy, burly guy, please don't take this literally. Whatever you do, I don't want you to come up and kiss me. I I like how J.B. Phillips, he renders this, give a handshake all around. That's good enough. Try a holy kiss on some guys and you could get punched in the kisser. Even today, of course, there are cultures in the world where the common greeting, even among men, is a peck on the cheek. And if we were in the Middle East or in Mother Russia, I probably wouldn't mind. But we're not. We're in the ATL. And the proper greeting in Salquinet is a handshake, friend. Maybe a, maybe a hug. If you score a touchdown and win the game, I might hug you. But, you know, when we're just out greeting, even, you know, out in the public especially, I might hug you here at church, but out in public, we're greeting each other. Hey, just a warm, sincere handshake will do the trick. But don't miss the point. Please don't miss the point. Greetings count no matter what form they take. Paul says, greet one another. Greetings count. You see, after you've battled the flesh and the world and the devil all week, it's nice to walk into this building and be greeted, to be welcomed as if you still belong. Wow, I still got a home here, even after the week I've had. They still greeted me and made me feel at home. You come in beaten up and bruised up, but you still belong. We still accept you. You're still one of us. This is what a greeting communicates. Greetings count. Greetings are important. Paul ends his letter to the Thessalonians. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Understand the New Testament letters predated the printing press by 1,400 years. In Paul's day, God's word was conveyed through a public reading. Few people read the word. They heard the word. How blessed we are to have a half dozen Bibles sitting on our shelf. We can pull the word out and read it anytime we like. They had to wait for a public reading. Paul closes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. I hope you're ready. Are you ready? The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Jesus is coming from, for a church that turned its back on idols to serve the living and true God. He's coming for a church that shared their faith, that received the Word, that endured persecution, that maintained their purity. We've read about such a church. Now let's be such a church. In Jesus' name, amen.